You are listening to a podcast from The National. When one of the tallest residential buildings in the world catches fire, that's an accident. But when the same building goes up in flames twice, that's a problem. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasal al-Wesmi. The building, which is unfortunately named The Torch, caught fire last week with the blaze going up almost 30 floors within seconds. Two years ago, almost the exact same thing happened, causing damages on, again, almost 30 floors. But they were never repaired. Now, Dubai police are investigating what sparked the fire, which has displaced dozens of residents. I'm joined by Romola Talwar Badum, a senior reporter at The National, who reported on the blaze last week. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nasser, for having me. So you reported on this. Police are still trying to figure it out, uh, the causes behind the fire. But this is a common problem in Dubai, it seems. You spoke to some of the residents, and I just wanted to know, what are your thoughts on this, and what did they have to say? Yeah. Um, actually, it was me and a whole lot of other journalists at the National Desk, on the National Desk, other reporters and people from the web as well who helped uh, with the story because it broke on Thursday, uh, you know, late, early Friday morning. Um, so um, there were different people who went on the site and spoke to the residents as well. But what most of them had to say was that they heard the fire alarm systems. When those went off, they looked out, saw the fire and ran down. Um, I think a lot of them were saved because... You know, they were they had time to escape and run down the stairwells to stay safety below. Also, the um, uh, the fire departments, the first responders, they all arrived there on time and were able to help uh, with either the evacuation or the clearance uh, measures. Um, what uh, residents are worried are now about is what happens to them um, in the near future. They've been given accommodation for some time, so some of them have uh, places to stay. That's probably going to last for a week or so. Um, uh, some, The rest of them are staying with uh, friends and family. So uh, um, some people are stuck overseas uh, still. You know, Some of them are on vacation or um, uh, they're in other countries and they found out that the fire has happened here. So they've asked their friends and relatives to go and check their apartments. We've spoken to a couple of them whose um, apartments have been affected by the fire and they're worried about what's going to happen when they come back. Many of them don't have insurance. That's another problem that Mm. people continuously face in the UAE. The tenants believe the landlord needs to take the insurance and uh, the tenants need to be covered as well. So what happens to those tenants who don't have insurance? So these are, you know, some of the worries and concerns that the people have. And of course, there were a couple of people that my other colleagues spoke to who said that um, um, they were in the um, torch in 2015 when it got fire and they didn't think that it would catch fire again there was one quote uh, that a resident that that one of the residents gave where he said that you know he always thought lightning never strike strikes twice and in his case unfortunately it happened again so um, those are the thoughts of the residents and their worries might be the result of us working at a newspaper and we just cover every fire but it seems that a lot of fires break out in the uae uh, but we almost never hear of deaths resulting from a fire, like you know the likes of which we saw at uh, Grenfell Tower in the UK this summer. So, what's going on? I mean, what what are the building standards in the UAE doing right that there are no deaths? But what are they doing wrong to avoid fires? 
there have actually been, I think, about five major fires since 2012 that have happened because of the um, uh, flammable aluminum cladding that a lot of the buildings have uh, on the exterior. Uh, the reason why a lot of these fires have shot into prominence is because um, uh, because the fires caught um, you know caught hold of the entire structure so quickly and raced up buildings so quickly. Uh, that's the reason why it was immediately brought into the limelight. And um, uh, one of the reasons why um, uh, residents have been able to escape really fast, according to safety experts, is because the systems have been working uh, fairly well. So, you know, you have the stairways, the stairways that have to be completely clear of any debris, of luggage, of uh, um, any, any kind of uh, equipment. So people have been able to escape fast enough. Alarm systems have been working. And the f first responders have uh, come uh, onto the scene in time. Uh, so because evacuations have been able have taken place, despite the fact that the fires took hold of the building so quickly, people have managed to escape in the UAE compared to what happened uh, in London. Um, what needs to be done, and uh, fire authorities and federal and both Emirate levels um, uh, authorities are working on this, is looking at um, the... Um, Buildings that predate a code that was established in 2012, uh, buildings that have um, uh, a flammable thermoplastic core between aluminum sheets, like one um, fire safety specialist put it, it's like um, having um, um, a sandwich, a composite pa panel sandwich. It's a skin of aluminum and thermoplastic core. You know, that's what, when, when that gets inflamed, uh, that um, uh, uh, that causes the fire to really spread quickly across the structure. So uh, buildings that predate the code, that is before 2012, those are the buildings that uh, need to uh, do um, checks. You know, the developers or the owners association need to con continuously do checks, maintenance checks, find out whether the fire systems are uh, working, uh, find out whether the sprinklers are working, the smoke detectors are working. And um, uh, if they have strong owners associations and building managements, that's when um, it would come into play to be able to be absolutely sure that those uh, fire systems are working in right. those stars. Right. Uh, I mean, we mentioned earlier that this building uh, was on fire twice, once in 2015 and last week. I mean, I wonder if it's just a number game because we also mentioned that it's the tallest resident, one of the tallest residential buildings in the world. So is it just the fact that there are more residents and therefore a higher chance of human error that could cause the fire? But I mean, I know they're doing the investigation now, but are there any uh, maybe uh, leads into what the causes of this fire might have been? Um, nothing so far. The investigation is just over. In fact, uh, as we speak, um, the um, owners, the building management said that uh, in certain um, uh, on certain floors, uh, residents are being allowed in because their uh, apartments were not affected, so they are allowed back in. Um, I guess police and civil defence will soon announce what the reasons were. In other cases um, uh, in Dubai, where fires have been caused, there's um, there, there was one case in which a cigarette butt, an unlit cigarette but that was tossed out of a window, uh, which caught, um, you know, it uh, set other things around it on fire. And then the aluminum panels caught fire. That was one reason. Shisha and barbecues on uh, balconies. That is another reason for many of the fires to start. Uh, so um, these are some of the reasons that, uh, you know, uh, 
also short circuits um uh, that sparked uh, flames that was another reason uh, in um, earlier cases in this case uh, we're still waiting for the authorities to tell us why so is there any talk of maybe uh, increasing the building standards uh is there any you know mention of what could be done to avoid these fires in the future yeah so the um, authorities have come out with an updated code that was um, released in january this year it's um, there's much more clarity in the code um, than there was before and what fire safety experts have said is that this will um, put the scanner on uh, new buildings that uh, the so new buildings will be that much safer because of the code um uh, so manufacturers who sell building materials that's not approved of civil defense will actually face prosecution for the first time uh, after this uh, safety code has been issued building owners will have to annually renew their no objection certificates from the civil defense before it was a one time thing so there's um, uh, and now there is also uh, you know there are some 183 or more fines if buildings are not complying with safety procedures where inspectors will go and check the buildings along with the uh, municipality um uh, they've um, uh, also spoken about uh, how manufacturers cannot supply material even if uh, you know um, even if it's cheaper because that that's available in the market because they can be prosecuted also there would be independent inspection committees that would be going to so because they are independent they will have um, uh, that much more authority to check the buildings and uh, and point out where there is a problem where safety precautions need to be taken so for the new buildings or safety precautions are already in as per the new code that was the updated code that was uh, released in january right. i've actually been in a fire so my you know our thoughts go out to those who are displaced and thank you so much romo Absolutely. for joining us thank you thank you nasir a problem that couldn't be avoided is qatar a small fight between brothers that's what everyone was calling the gulf crisis the first week it broke out I was in Kuwait when Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt and Bahrain decided to cut ties with Doha. It was June 5th and the first week of Ramadan. Almost everyone I spoke to was expecting the whole thing to blow over within a few days, or if it got really bad, they were expecting it to be resolved by Eid. But as the weeks went on and the row escalated, it became clear that this wasn't just a small fight as not only the Kuwaitis were calling it but many gulf citizens too this was a severance i am joined by mishal girgawi the founding and managing director of the delma institute a think tank based in the uae thank you for joining us mishal thank you thank you for having me we've entered the second month of the crisis and it looks like there's no end in sight uh, mishal th- this row has brought up a lot of things to light uh, officials from the quartet keep reminding us that this isn't an isolated incident so i want to know how much of this issue is rooted in history and where do these grievances stem from i think fundamentally uh this is a crisis of mutual trust the uh the quartet feels that qatar has continued to operate in a way that undermines their security and qatar equally feels that the quartet views the father emir and the current emir as illegitimate usurpers uh, of uh, uh, power from their grandfather 
and ever since 1995 and then 1996 uh, when the coup where Sheikh Hamid bin Khalifa came to power and then the counter coup in 1996 when his father tried to come back and failed, uh, Qatar has felt that it is cornered. And so it has resorted to using all sorts of ways to feel secure. And fundamentally, I think the problem is that Qatar's foreign policy has become the domestic policy of those four countries and others as well. Talking about security, I remember I called you, I think it was the first week of the crisis, and we talked about this before. You told me that this might be the final nail in the coffin for the GCC. Two months in, I mean, what are your thoughts on that now? Um, I think the GCC is going to go the way, by the way of the Arab League. Um, so I don't think it's going to not exist anymore, but I think it's going to be less effective than it's been. And so if you think about the Arab League, it's a place where there's too many members that have bilateral grievances and issues. And so because of that, the Arab League is so, its statements are so broad, they're so general that it's uh, not effective. And I think the Arab League, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the GCC is going to go that way. Do you think it'll go that way into turning into an obsolete uh, body, a governing body, or, or just dissolve? No, I don't think it's going to dissolve. Okay. I think that would be too traumatic for everybody. I think, like I said, it's going to go the way by the, by the way of the Arab League, where sort of it's like a dead man walking. Like it exists, and all the institutions are there, but doesn't. Because if you really think about it, I mean, why would the GCC... Would you found the GCC today the way you found it... 35 years ago or 37 years ago as you did. Right, right. Like, would you? Uh, and I think the security concerns are different mm. than they were then. Mm. And the economic imperatives that sort of were never really, I mean, intended. They're, they're sort of like, they came as a byproduct. Customs union, uh, the VAT that's coming on board. Um, that's not enough to keep it together. Right. You always need a political uh, reason uh, um, for these kinds of unions, and the economics is a byproduct of that that's supporting that political reason, whether that's in the European Union, in the ASEAN, um, and certainly was the case in the GCC. Going back to a more ancient form of attack, so I want to know how effective has this boycott been? I mean, is isolating Qatar quite possibly pushing the country towards desperation? Uh, over the weekend, Doha held meetings in Tehran to open trade routes with Turkey, through Iran. The fear is that it this might be pushing it towards Iran and thus further exasperating the problem. So do you think this is the case or is this just business as usual for Doha, but just under a microscope? Yeah, I mean, a couple of points. One is it's unclear whether the boycotting countries ever really thought that the boycott was really going to force uh, Qatar to renounce its ways. I'm not so sure that they really thought so. I think what they, what they thought is that we have tried to speak to them, we have tried to reach a modus vivendi, we've tried to come to some kind of an agreement and it's failed. At the very least, I would like to basically act on my frustrations and my grievances. And if nothing comes of this, at least I would have quarantined Qatar away from me. So I think that's one point. 
The second, I think people are over-exaggerating the sort of narrative of Qatar falling into the arms of Iran and Turkey. Um, Qatar shares the its most important gas field with Iran. Um, Qatar and Turkey are major, major partners, strategically, economically, uh, on multiple levels. There are high, high levels of trust between both governments. Um, uh, and um, they have found areas where they've cooperated before. The very famous uh, Palestine summit in 2009 in Doha, after the 2008-2009 bombings that were done separately, where Ahmadinejad was invited, and uh, all Palestinian groups except the PLO were invited, and the deputy prime minister of Turkey, I think, was invited. Uh, I think it was Shimshek. Um, so this kind of coalition is not something new. It's existed. Um, but it, it does seem to me very clearly that um, there, there, is, there isn't that expectation that you would think that the uh, that people have emphasized that the that the quartet really does think that the next move would have been Qatar being like, okay, I get it, you made your point. I am not going to support the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. I am not going to uh, 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 take a view because I think fundamentally there is very, 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 very big difference in the perspective of these four countries and Qatar. Right, right. And that is one point. Um, those four countries are pro-order. And Qatar is pro-change. And when you are pro-change and you're sort of trying to change the order that exists right now with something else, you're sort of like a striker. All you have to do is score once. Uh, while if you are pro-order, if you own all of the infrastructure, if you believe in that current system, all you have to do, you have to succeed every time. Right. That's sort of like the position the United States is in right now globally. It's a, they have to, they're invested in the order in a way where Britain was invested in the order in 19th century, in the way probably China will be invested in the order in the 21st century. So I think uh, for Qatar, the margin of success is quite low. Like all it has to do is just not go away. All it has to do is wait out um, until people forget how difficult the reign of the Muslim Brotherhood was in Egypt, for example, right. until Yemen gets harder and just that. So in that way, it has a very guerrilla tactic. So I think it's cost and also it's, it's quite wealthy. Um, and so it can weather the storm, I think, and, and that. But fundamentally, I think the, 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 the view is very cynical, which is none of this is going to last. None of these things that are being attempted to kind of bring an order to the region are going to work out. And so through that change, we will build a new order eventually. It's a very Phoenix-ish, I think, mentality. And that was represented in the Arab Spring with Qatar supporting it, more or less welcoming it happening. So, Michelle, I want to bring, bring it to another uh, phase. I mean, how are the civilians affected? Usually this kind of thing is a political issue. The people between the countries remain friendly while the heads of state engage, or in this case, disengage. But this time it was different. Two weeks into the crisis, a law was passed in the UAE and Saudi that placed heavy fines and possibly jail time towards anyone who criticized the actions. All of a sudden, literally overnight, the public sentiment went from being neutral to aggressive. You could see it on Twitter and the way people were talking. 
What are your thoughts on how this might have changed the social relations between the people who, at the end of the day, uh, I mean, who hardly have anything to do with the crisis? I, I think that is the most tragic component of this crisis. Um, um, you know, we live in an era where everything is screen captured, everything is uploaded. And so whatever taunts, whatever insults are being exchanged between um, citizens of the five countries, probably others, people who have taken sides from other countries, all of that isn't going to go away. And so I think the fabric of those relationships uh, are going to be really in question. I think, um, you know, there was uh, really, I think we're seeing an end of an era. You know, we talked about politically the, the GCC becoming uh, sort of an Arab League-like organization, but I think you also talk about the end of the Khaliji man or woman, that archetype that came together um, sometime in the 60s, 70s, when Kuwait took a role in spreading education in the region, uh, when Gulf Cup started, when these songs came, and Al-Khaliji, I think those words are now empty, or they're beginning to become empty. And I think we're seeing an era where uh, whatever blocks, whatever people... Uh, um, you're going to get along with, they won't be people you get along with for cultural reasons, which is, I think, what was, by and large, the criteria. Um, uh, it will be people you get along with because of political, uh, I think, affiliations and ideologies. And I think that's going to become a very important filter, where if you come from X country and you are pro one idea versus other, and there's a couple of competing ideas right now in our theater, you would prefer spending time with somebody from a different place who has those same um, ideas versus something else. Right. Um, it's 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 uh, absolutely tragic. Michel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. This week marked 50 years since the establishment of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the bloc which brings together. 10 Southeast Asian nations, looks to promote the idea of economic, political, and cultural pan-Asianism. Joe Tan, our foreign desk editor, reported on how sports, dinner, drinks, and laughter on a secluded Thai beach forged one of the most important regional alliances to date. In a special report on the association's foundation and challenges today, she interviewed Kishori Mahbubani, co-author of ASEAN Miracle and Singapore's former ambassador to the UN, on the region's unique brand of diplomacy. How do you think ASEAN managed to achieve such success then in just 50 years, despite its diversity, despite the circumstances you know, in which it was born? Yeah. Well, in, again, in the book, I say that this is a result of uh, uh, a few four-letter words that explain it. The first four-letter word begins with F. It's fear, F-E-A-R. It was the fear of the communist expansion that brought the ASEAN countries together initially. The founding five, they came together despite their bilateral problems because of a common fear. And then the second four-letter word is luck. They were, ASEAN countries were lucky that they, the geopolitical stars were aligned in their way. And in the 1980s, uh, ASEAN worked closely with both U.S. and China 
And so the joint U.S.-China support strengthened ASEAN a great deal. And ASEAN was also lucky in having uh, strong leaders. And finally, the third uh, four-letter word is a surprise to everybody. It is G-O-L-F. And many ASEAN problems were resolved over golf games. Uh, other regional organizations should also encourage more golf games among their members. The Western way of uh, bringing about cooperation is always through very legalistic, formalistic ways. Whereas in the Asian way, is through more personal connections. And that's why golf is so important. Because when you play golf together, you develop a sense of camaraderie, you know. And as a result of that uh, uh, camaraderie, you get over all the disputes and differences uh, uh, that you have. And the other thing that I, I'm not sure whether I mentioned in the book is that when you go to ASEAN meetings, the ASEAN uh, ministers would insist that all the visitors would have to sing a song on stage, right? <laughs> and that was amazing. That they, So you, you can imagine Madeleine Albright, uh, Sergei Lavrov jumping onto the stage and singing songs, you know, and dressed like Mexican artists and so on and so forth. It added a you know a real personal touch, so people became good friends as a result. I'd like to thank my guests, Ramola Talwar Badu, Michelle Girgawi, and Joe Tan for her special report on ASEAN. You can find all our podcasts on the Nationals website and on iTunes. This has been another episode of Beyond the Headlines. My name is Nasr Westmi. Thank you and goodbye.